Section 8 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 5, verses 1 to 21. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God being justified therefore the apostle begins by illustrating from effects his former assertion concerning the righteousness of faith this whole chapter consists in amplifications which are no less powerful in explaining than confirming the doctrine of the apostle for he had before said that faith is abolished if righteousness is sought by works for wretched souls that can find nothing solid in themselves will be disturbed by constant want of rest he now on the other hand teaches us that our souls are rendered quiet and tranquil when we have obtained justification by faith we have peace a singular fruit of the righteousness of faith for every desire to seek for security of conscience by works as is apparent in profane and ignorant characters will be unsuccessful for the breast is either lulled to rest by the contempt or oblivion of the divine judgment or is full of fear and trembling until it has leaned on christ for he alone is peace serenity of conscience therefore is peace which arises from feeling god to be reconciled to us in christ neither the pharisee inflated by a false confidence in his works nor the stupid sinner inebriated by the sweetness of his vices enjoys this tranquillity of mind for though neither of these seems to be at open war with the lord as a person struck with a sense of sin feels himself to be yet because they do not truly assent to the judgment of god they experience no harmony and union with him for a stupid state of conscience implies in itself an undoubted departure as it were from god peace therefore towards god is opposed to the drunken security of the flesh since the rousing of themselves to give an account of their mode of living is the first point to which their attention ought to be directed no one indeed can stand before god without fear unless he relies with confidence on gratuitous reconciliation because while a being of infinite holiness is considered to be our judge all men must be affected with terror and dismay this affords the strongest argument that our adversaries only prate at their ease under the shade when they arrogantly lay claim to righteousness by works for the conclusion which is deduced by paul depends on this principle that wretched souls are always in a state of doubt if they do not rest on the grace of christ by whom also we have access for our reconciliation with god is supported by christ for he alone is the beloved son of the most high and we are all by nature the children of wrath but this grace is communicated to us by the gospel for it is the ministry of reconciliation by the favour of which we are in some measure introduced into the kingdom of god paul therefore hath deservedly presented to our view in christ a certain pledge of the grace of god that he may withdraw us in a more effectual manner from the confidence of works and the word access implies that salvation commences with christ who meets as it were the undeserving and stretches forth his hand for their deliverance to the exclusion of all preparations by which foolish men conceive themselves to anticipate the mercy of god the continuance of the same grace paul afterwards immediately subjoins is our security for the firmness and stability of our salvation and our perseverance as he hints is not founded on our own virtue or industry but on christ when however the apostle speaks at the same time of our standing he intimates how deeply the gospel ought to be rooted in the hearts of believers 
that being strengthened by its truth they may continue firm and unshaken against all the machinations of the devil and the flesh our standing in grace by faith implies that our belief is not the fleeting persuasion of a day but so fixed and deeply seated in our minds as to continue during our whole lives the person therefore who is impelled by a sudden impulse to believe has not such a faith as entitles him to be reckoned among believers but he who with a constant and unfaltering steadfastness remains so fixed and settled in the station divinely appointed him as always to adhere to christ his saviour and we glory in hope hence therefore the hope of a future life manifests itself and dares to exalt and glory because the foundations on which we stand rest on the glory of god for according to the apostle though the faithful are now wanderers and pilgrims on earth yet their confidence raises them so far above the heavens as to make them cherish in their bosoms with calmness and tranquillity the hope of their future inheritance and this passage entirely overthrows the two very ruinous and pestilential opinions of the sophists christians according to one of these opinions are commanded to rest satisfied with a mere moral conjecture in perceiving the manifestation of god's grace towards themselves the other maintains that all are left in a state of uncertainty concerning final perseverance was however our knowledge at present uncertain and our persuasion with respect to the future doubtful and hesitating who would have courage to glory the hope of the glory of god hath shone upon us by the gospel which testifies that we shall be made partakers of the divine nature two peter one four for when we shall see god face to face we shall be like him one john three two and not only so but we glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of god is shed abroad in our hearts by the holy ghost which is given unto us and not only so paul anticipates the objection which some might deridingly propose that christians notwithstanding all their glory are in this world harassed and wearied in a surprising manner which is a condition the very reverse of bliss and in answer he declares that the calamities of the pious so far from impeding their enjoyment of happiness contribute to promote the advancement of their glory he reasons in establishing this proof from the effect and uses an elegant climax with which he finally concludes to show that all the afflictions we at present suffer tend to our salvation and happiness and we must not understand his expression of the saints glorying in their tribulations as if they did not fear and fly from affliction or were not sore pressed with its keen blasts when they are overtaken by the howling tempest of adversity for no patience would result from such trials if they did not feel a bitterness but they are properly said to glory because in the midst of their grief and sorrows they experience great consolation which they consider to be dispensed by the hand of their most indulgent parent for good during all their sufferings for they have always sufficient ground for glorying where their salvation is promoted and advanced hence therefore we are taught the design of our tribulations if we are desirous to be considered as the sons of god for they ought to accustom us to patience and if this is not accomplished our vileness renders the work of god again ineffectual for whence does he prove adversity not to be opposed to the glory of the pious but because by their patience in enduring they feel the assistance of god which supports and confirms their hope it is certain therefore that all persons who do not learn patience are making a bad progress in the divine life 
nor do the complaints of the saints in scripture which are full of despair form any objection against this view for occasionally at least god so presses and straightens his people as scarcely to allow them a breathing time or a remembrance of their consolation but in a moment he restores those to life whom he had almost overwhelmed in the darkness of death thus the expression of paul two corinthians four eight is always fulfilled in them we are troubled on every side yet not distressed we are perplexed but not in despair persecuted but not forsaken cast down but not destroyed tribulation worketh patience this does not proceed from the nature of tribulation by which we see a large portion of mankind excited to rail against and even to curse god but when inward meekness infused by the spirit of god and comfort suggested by the same have succeeded in the place of stubbornness and obstinacy tribulations which in the obstinate and refractory can only excite indignation and fretting become the instruments of generating patience in believers patience experience james in a similar climax seems to follow a different order for he says experience worketh patience but these two apostles may be reconciled by understanding the words to be taken in a different meaning for paul means by experience the certain protection of god which the faithful enjoy when confiding in his assistance they overcome all difficulties they experience indeed the greatness of the divine power as long as they continue firm in bearing with patience which aid according to his promise will always be present with his people the passage in james according to the usual acceptation of the word in scripture relates to tribulations because god proves and tries his servants by these and hence they are often denominated temptations with respect to the present passage our progress in patience is such as becomes the character of a christian when we consider our perseverance in this duty to arise from the power of god and thus for the future entertain a hope that we shall never want his grace which has always afforded us assistance in necessity paul therefore subjoins that hope arises from experience because we are ungrateful after receiving benefits if we do not confirm our hope for the future by calling them to remembrance hope maketh not ashamed as a most certain effect upon our salvation hence we are evidently tried with afflictions by the lord for the very purpose of using these as steps to promote the advancement of our salvation those troubles therefore cannot render us wretched which in their own way are the supports of our happiness he has thus established his position that the pious have ground for glorying in the midst of their afflictions for the love of god i do not refer to the last word only but to the whole of the preceding sentence we are i say improved by tribulations for performing the duty of patience and patience affords us a proof of the divine assistance by which we are more emboldened and encouraged to hope for much as we may be troubled and seem wearied out yet we cease not to feel the divine kindness towards us which is the most abundant consolation and much greater than if prosperity attended all our undertakings since as what appears to be happiness is misery itself when the wrath and opposition of god are arrayed against us so our very calamities will undoubtedly terminate in prosperity and joyful success if our heavenly father be propitious since all things must be subservient to the will of our creator who according to his fatherly favour towards us as paul again repeats chapter eight orders and tempers all the trials of the cross for our own salvation this knowledge of the divine love towards us is instilled into our hearts by the spirit of god for neither eye hath seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man to conceive the blessings god hath prepared for such as worship him
the spirit alone can reveal these things the participle shed abroad is very emphatic for it signifies that the revelation of divine love to us is so abundant as to fill our hearts and this being poured forth upon every part of our character and feelings not only mitigates our sorrow in adversity but sweetly seasons and gives a loveliness even to our tribulations he says also this spirit is bestowed merely by the gratuitous goodness of god and not paid as a recompense to our merits augustine has indeed made this excellent remark though he mistakes in explaining the love of god in an active sense as if we endure adversity with constancy and are thus confirmed in our hope because being regenerated by his spirit we love god this is a pious sentiment but wholly foreign from paul's view of the passage for love is here taken in a passive sense and the apostle undoubtedly teaches us that the real genuine fountain of all charity is the persuasion which the faithful experience of the love entertained by god for them nor are they merely tinctured in a slight degree but have their minds completely replenished and anointed with this conviction for when we were yet without strength in due time christ died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die but god commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us much more then being now justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him for when we were yet without strength i could not allow myself to translate this sentence according to the time wherein we were weak though this meaning corresponds more with my own view of the passage the argument from the greater to the less which will be afterwards prosecuted at greater length begins here and though the thread of the discourse is not very distinctly preserved yet the irregularity of the structure will not perplex the sense of the whole if the apostle says christ pitied the wicked if he reconciled his enemies to the father and accomplished all this by virtue of his death he will now with much more ease secure the salvation of such as are justified and preserve in grace those who have experienced its enjoyment especially as the power of the endless life of our saviour is now added to his death some understand the time of weakness to mean the period when christ first began to be manifested to the world and consider men to have been called weak at that period because they resembled children in consequence of being kept under the tutelage of the law this passage in my opinion relates to every individual believer and time denotes the period which preceded the reconciliation of the saints with god for we are born the children of wrath and continue under that curse until we are made partakers of christ he calls those weak who are a mass of nothing but vice for in this same verse he denominates them ungodly nor is this a novel sense of the term weakness since the apostle one corinthians twelve twenty two calls the less honourable parts of the body weak and two corinthians ten ten his bodily presence weak which is not distinguished for dignity this meaning will occur more frequently a little farther on christ died for the wicked when we were in a state of weakness and by no means worthy or fit to be regarded by god because faith is the beginning of piety from which all those for whom he died were alienated the same remark applies to the ancient patriarchs who obtained righteousness before the death of christ for they secured this benefit from his death which was determined to take place at a future period for scarcely for a righteous man the particle for must be taken in an affirmative or declarative sense and the following is the meaning of the apostle it is a very rare example among men to find any person ready to die for the just which however may sometimes happen granting this occasionally to be the case none will ever be found ready to die for the wicked as christ did 
the comparison heightens the greatness of the blessing since there does not exist among mankind such an example of benevolence as christ exhibited on our account and god commends i translate the verb confirms for the object of the apostle is not to excite us to thankfulness but to establish the confidence and security of our souls he confirms therefore or in other words declares his love towards us to be most certain and firm because he had not spared his son jesus christ for the sake of the wicked and in this his love appears that not induced by our love he first loved us of his own accord as john states john three sixteen the word sinners as in many other places means such as are wholly devoted to vice and abandoned to sin john nine thirty one god heareth not sinners namely wicked and infamous characters the woman who was a sinner luke seven thirty seven implies one of the most dissolute habits the following antithetic part of the passage being justified by his blood proves this more clearly for as the two characters are opposed to each other and those are termed justified who are freed from the guilt of sin the consequence necessarily follows that sinners mean such as are condemned for their crimes this is the sum of the whole if christ hath acquired righteousness for sinners by his death he will now much more protect them when justified from ruin and destruction and in this latter member of the sentence he applies to his doctrine the comparison of less and greater for it would not have been sufficient that christ had once secured salvation for us unless he had ensured and confirmed the same to the very last and the apostle now contends we have no cause for fearing lest christ break off and leave us in the midst of our course and in the career of his grace for such is our condition since we were reconciled by him to the father that he is desirous to exert his grace towards us with more efficacy and to increase it every day for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life the former opinion is here explained and amplified by comparing christ's life and death christ presented himself as a propitiatory sacrifice to the father when we were his enemies we are now made friends by his reconciliation and if this was accomplished by his death the power and efficacy of his life will be much greater we have therefore ample proofs to confirm our minds in the confidence of our salvation christ by his death according to paul reconciled us to god because he was an expiatory sacrifice by which atonement was made to god for the world as i have shown in the fourth chapter the apostle seems in this passage to contradict himself for if the death of christ was a pledge of divine love towards us the consequence necessarily follows that we were even then acceptable to him but he now says we were his enemies i answer because god hates sin we also are hated by him in our character as sinners but he ceases to hate us forasmuch as he adopts us into the body of christ by his secret counsel our return to grace is however unknown to us until we attain it by faith with respect to ourselves therefore we are always enemies until the death of christ intercedes to make god propitious and this distinction by which we are regarded in a twofold point of view demands our attention for we acknowledge this mercy of god to be no otherwise gratuitous than by its being evident that he had not spared his only begotten son for he loved us when a disagreement existed between us and our heavenly father again we do not sufficiently feel a kindness to have been conferred upon us by the death of christ unless this is the commencement of our reconciliation with god so as to be convinced that our heavenly preserver who before was our enemy has become propitious since the expiation was accomplished 
when therefore the death of christ is assigned as the cause of our being received into favour the meaning is that the guilt to which we were otherwise liable has been removed and not only so but we also joy in god through our lord jesus christ by whom we have now received the atonement and not only so he now goes to the highest degree of boasting for while we glory in god as ours every blessing which our imagination can conceive or desire or wish is obtained and flows from this fountain for god is not only the highest of all our blessings but he contains also in himself the sum and substance as well as all the individual and constituent parts of happiness and he is made ours by christ we have therefore attained such a point by the blessing of faith as to possess everything necessary for our felicity nor does he frequently inculcate reconciliation without a cause that first we may learn to keep our eyes fixed upon the death of christ whenever our personal salvation is concerned and in the second place know that our confidence is to be placed in nothing else but the expiation of our sins wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned for until the law sin was in the world but sin is not imputed when there is no law nevertheless death reigned from adam to moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of adam's transgression who is the figure of him that was to come wherefore as he now begins to enlarge the same doctrine by comparing two contrary subjects for if the object of christ's coming was to redeem us from the ruin into which adam had fallen and hurled all his posterity headlong as well as himself we cannot more distinctly perceive our possessions in christ than by a clear proof of our loss in adam though the comparison is not in every respect similar on this account paul subjoins a correction as will appear in its proper place and we will also point out the difference in this comparison this reasoning is rendered in some measure obscure for want of connection since the second part of the comparison which corresponds to the first is not expressed we will study to make both plain by our remarks on the passage sin entered into the world observe the order followed by paul for he says sin preceded which was followed by death some contend our ruin to be effected in such a manner by the sin of adam that we perish not from any fault of our own but merely because our first father had as it were sinned for us paul however expressly affirms that sin is propagated to all those who suffer punishment on its account and the apostle presses this still closer when shortly after he assigns a reason why all the posterity of adam is subject to the power of death namely because we have all sinned to sin therefore is to be corrupt and vicious for the natural depravity which we bring from our mother's womb though it does not so soon produce its effects is still however sin in the presence of the lord and deserves his punishment this is what divines call original sin for as adam at his first creation had received the gift of divine grace for his posterity as well as himself so on departing from the lord he corrupted vitiated depraved ruined our nature in himself for being deprived of the image of god he could only produce a seed resembling himself we have therefore all sinned because we are all imbued with natural corruption on which account we are wicked and perverse for the pelagians formerly endeavoured to avoid the force of the language of paul by frivolously supposing sin to be diffused by imitation from adam to the whole race since according to this statement christ would only be an example not a cause of righteousness the inference is also plain that the apostle does not treat of actual sin for if every person was the cause of his own guilt why should paul compare adam with christ 
It follows, therefore, that our depravity here alluded to is innate and hereditary. Until the law. Paul anticipates an objection by this parenthesis, for since there does not appear to be transgression without the law, it might be doubted whether sin existed before the law. There could be no doubt of its existing after that period, and the only difficulty was concerning the time preceding the law. Paul, therefore, answers that though God had never passed sentence by a written law, the human race would still have been cursed even from the womb. Such characters as spent a wicked and abandoned life before the law was promulgated could by no means be freed from the condemnation of sin, for there was always a God to whom worship was due, and there always existed some rule and standard of righteousness. This plain and clear explanation affords of itself a sufficient answer to contrary interpretations. But sin is not imputed. We slumber, as it were, over our sins, if not rebuked by the law. And though we are acquainted with our evil actions, yet we bury to the utmost of our power, or at least destroy by sudden oblivion, the knowledge of sin which intrudes itself upon our notice, while the law convicts, rebukes, and, as it were, rouses us by chiding our conduct, that we may afterward return and reflect upon God's judgments the apostle therefore intimates the perverse character of men to be so great as to indulge in sin with security and pleasure when not excited by the law and to lay aside in a great measure all distinction between virtue and vice as if god would never summon them before his judgment seat the punishment of cain the destruction of the whole world by the deluge the burning of sodom the punishment inflicted on pharaoh and abimelech on account of abraham and finally the plagues of egypt clearly prove that crimes were imputed to men by god the numerous complaints and expostulations by which men accuse each other of iniquity and the various apologies for the purpose of exculpating with care and zeal their own conduct clearly prove the mutual imputation of crime and vice in human transactions there are finally frequent examples to convince every individual of his own consciousness of good and evil but in general persons so connive at their own evil actions as to impute no sins to themselves unless by compulsion when therefore paul asserts that sin is not imputed without law he speaks comparatively since men sink down into sloth and indolence when they are not goaded on to action by the law paul has introduced this opinion with much prudence that the jews might hence become better acquainted with the heinous guilt of such as are openly condemned by the law for if persons never cited by god as guilty before his tribunal were not acquitted from punishment what shall become of the jews to whom the law as a herald proclaims their guilt nay denounces judgment another reason why the apostle expressly says sin had reigned before the law without being imputed is to acquaint us with this truth that the cause of death does not arise from the law but is only pointed out by it he declares therefore that all had been miserably ruined immediately after the fall of adam although death had finally been disclosed by the law it will suit the context better to translate the adversative particle although and the sense is as follows let men indulge in sin as they choose they will never be able to escape the judgment of god although they are not convicted by the law death reigned from adam Paul explains with greater clearness that the licentious and abandoned security with which mankind, from Adam to the promulgation of the law, having bid adieu to every distinction between virtue and vice, revelled in sin, was of no avail in rescuing them from its curse. Although the very remembrance of sin had been obliterated without the admonition of the law, it still continued to flourish with vigour and drag its votaries to trial and condemnation wherefore death also then reigned because the judgment of god could not be destroyed by man's blindness and hardness of heart even over those who had not 
although this passage is generally understood of little children who without being guilty of any actual transgression perish from original sin yet i prefer to interpret it generally of those who have sinned without law for this sentence must be joined with the preceding words where it was said sin was not imputed where there was no law they did not therefore sin after the similitude of adam's transgression because they had not as their first father the will of god revealed to them by a certain oracle from heaven for the lord had forbidden adam to touch the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and testimony of conscience was the only command given them the apostle therefore was desirous to give a hint that this difference between adam and his posterity could not free them from condemnation this universal catalogue may also include infants who is the figure of him that was to come this sentence is given instead of the other part of the comparison which he has omitted and it must be supplied in the following manner as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin so righteousness returned by one man and life by righteousness we need not be surprised at his calling adam a type of christ for some similitude is always apparent even in subjects the most contrary since therefore as we are all ruined by the sin of adam so we are repaired by the righteousness of christ adam is not improperly called a type of the messiah observe also that adam is not called a figure of sin and christ of righteousness as if they led us in the way only by their example but one of them is compared with the other that we may not fall into the foolish imagination and ruinous error of origin for he disputes in a philosophical and profane manner concerning the corruption of the human race and not only weakens but almost entirely destroys the grace of christ no excuse therefore can be made for erasmus who labours too much in framing an apology for so gross and daring an opinion but not as the offence so also is the free gift for if through the offence of one many be dead much more the grace of god and the gift by grace which is by one man jesus christ hath abounded unto many but not as the offence the apostle in correcting his comparisons between christ and adam does not consider so minutely the distinctions by which they are characterized as he opposes the errors into which his readers might be apt to fall we will supply what is wanting to complete the explanation the apostle in his frequent repetitions of the difference between christ and adam always preserves some opposition or writes elliptically these imperfections in the language of our author weaken in no measure the majesty of that heavenly wisdom which has been communicated to us by his writings nay the singular providence of god has determined to make us acquainted with these deep mysteries by means of a low and contemptible style that our faith might not depend upon the power of human eloquence but upon the alone efficacy of the spirit he does not as yet expressly state here the reason why he corrects his comparison but he simply informs us that the grace acquired by christ is more extensive and of greater compass than the condemnation contracted by the first man i know not whether all my readers will agree in opinion with such commentators as consider the apostle to establish his proofs by argument no objection can be formed against the conclusiveness of the following inference if the fall of adam availed so much for the destruction of many the grace of god will be much more efficacious for the blessing of many since it is confessed that christ is much more powerful to save than adam to destroy i leave it to my readers to choose either of the interpretations they prefer since it is impossible to refute the opinion of those who consider the apostle not to pursue in this passage a chain of reasoning it is however probable that paul simply corrected or rendered more accurate by his exception the comparison which he has instituted between adam and christ because none can consider any inference to be contained in the following passage which is treated in the same manner 
paul it is to be observed does not draw a comparison between the number ruined by adam and saved by christ for he is not speaking of the whole body of mankind but he argues that as the sin of adam had involved many in ruin so the righteousness of christ would be of no less avail for the salvation of many the apostle says we perished by the offence of one because corruption was transferred from adam to us his descendants for our ruin is not so affected by adam's guilt as to leave us without blame but paul assigns our ruin to adam because his sin was the cause of ours i call it our sin which is natural to us and with which we are born the grace of god and the gift by grace grace is properly opposed to offence the gift which proceeds from grace is contrasted with death grace therefore signifies the mere goodness or the gratuitous love of jehovah an example of which was afforded us in christ to succour and relieve our misery and the gift is the fruit of mercy which has extended to us namely reconciliation whereby we have attained life and salvation righteousness newness of life and everything of a similar nature this shows the ignorant and bungling definition of grace given by the schoolmen who determine it to be merely a quality infused into the hearts of men for grace is properly in god the effect of grace exists in ourselves and paul says it was of the one man christ because the father made him the fountain from whose fulness all may draw their supplies he thus teaches us that not a drop of life can be found out of christ and the transferring of his own abundance into us believers is the only remedy for our want and poverty and not as it was by one that sinned so is the gift for the judgment was by one to condemnation but the free gift is of many offences unto justification this is the reason of his particular correction of the comparison between adam and christ that guiltiness prevailed from one offence to the condemnation of us all but grace or rather the gratuitous gift is sufficiently efficacious to justify us from many offences for it is the declaration of the following sentence because he had not yet stated how or in what respect adam surpasses christ the correctness of this distinction between christ and adam having been granted we clearly see the impiety of those sentiments which state that we recovered nothing else in christ except our liberation from original sin or corruption contracted by adam the numerous offences from which the apostle testifies we are purified by the blessing of christ do not merely include our transgressions before baptism but the new guilt daily contracted by the sins of believers which would deservedly subject them to condemnation unless the divine grace afforded them constant relief when the gift is contrasted with judgment the latter implies unrelenting rigour the former gratuitous pardon for condemnation results from rigid judgment absolution from free pardon or which amounts to the same thing if god deals with us according to our deserts we are all involved in one common ruin but we are freely and gratuitously justified by our infinite sovereign in christ for if by one man's offence death reigned by one much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one jesus christ for if by the offence of one he again subjoins a general correction of his comparison on which he more fully insists for he designs not to follow out the consideration of every particular but to determine the chief sum of the whole matter he had before declared that the power of grace had been more abundant than transgression and on this ground comforts and confirms believers while he encourages and exhorts them to reflect on the kindness of god for the earnestness of his repetitions proceeds from a desire that grace should be celebrated according to its dignity 
that men should be withdrawn from a confidence in themselves and led to place unbounded reliance upon christ and that after we have become partakers of his grace we may enjoy full and complete security which is finally the spring and foundation of our gratitude the following is the sum of the whole since christ surpasses adam the sin of the latter is overcome by the righteousness of the former the curse of the latter is overwhelmed and sunk in the grace of the former the life of christ swallows up the death which derived its commencement from our first parent neither indeed do the different parts of the comparison mutually correspond with each other for paul ought to have stated that the blessing of life reigns and flourishes more by the abundance of grace instead of which he says that the righteous shall reign in life the sense however is the same for the kingdom of the faithful in life is also the reign of life in believers it is also of importance to point out here two distinctions between christ and adam which the apostle omitted not as if he considered them unworthy of his attention but because their enumeration had no relation to his present argument the first is that adam's sin does not condemn us by imputation alone as if we were punished for the sin of another but his punishment is therefore inflicted upon us because we are guilty of transgression since our nature being corrupted in adam is bound under the guilt of iniquity in the sight of god but christ's righteousness restores us to salvation by another method which is not accepted of god because it is within us but the bounty of the father makes us possess christ himself who is bestowed upon us with all his blessings the gift of righteousness therefore does not signify a quality with which god endues us according to the vain interpretation of some but the gratuitous imputation of righteousness for the apostle explains what he meant by the word grace the other distinction is that christ's benefit does not extend to all men as adam involved his whole race in condemnation and the reason is evident for since the curse we receive from adam is derived by nature from him to us we need not be surprised at its embracing the whole mass of mankind while we cannot become partakers of the grace of christ unless we are engrafted into him by faith the mere participation of human nature is therefore sufficient to entail the wretched inheritance of sin for it resides in flesh and blood but faith is necessary to entitle us to the righteousness of christ since believers only can be made partakers of so great a blessing it is communicated in a peculiar way to infants for they have the right of adoption in the covenant by which they enter into communion with christ i speak of the children of the pious to whom the promise of grace is directed for others are by no means exempted from the common lot therefore as by the offence of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life the passage is defective which will be rendered complete by reading the word condemnation and justification in the nominative so as to supply the full and entire sense this also forms the conclusion of the preceding general comparison for he omits mentioning the inserted correction and completes the similitude as by the offence of one we were rendered sinners so the righteousness of christ has sufficient power to justify us the greek word which he uses in this place for righteousness does not signify that he was privately righteous on his own account but its meaning is more extensive and implies the enriching of believers by the gift conferred upon the redeemer paul makes grace common to all because it is proposed and declared to all but in reality not extended to all for though christ suffered for the sins of the whole world and by the kindness of god is offered indifferently to all yet he is not apprehended and laid hold of by all mankind the two words judgment and grace which he lately used might be repeated in this sense as by the judgment of god the sin of one was conveyed by descent to the condemnation of many so grace will have strength and energy for the justification of many 
justification of life in my opinion conveys the idea of absolution which restores life to us as if he had said life-giving for our hope of salvation springs from god being propitious and we cannot be accepted by him unless we are righteous life therefore flows from justification for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous this is not tautology but the necessary declaration of the important truth that the offence of one man proves us so sunk in guilt that we cannot be innocent he had before said that we were condemned but to prevent us from daring to claim innocence as our own he determined also to subjoin the universal condemnation of every individual of the human race because he is a sinner when he afterwards declares that we are made righteous by the obedience of christ we hence infer that christ has procured righteousness for us because he has satisfied his father hence it follows that righteousness exists in christ as a quality but what is his peculiar property is considered as bestowed on us believers he explains also what he means by the righteousness of christ when he denominates it obedience where we may observe the absolute obedience to the law in all its parts not merely some of its precepts can alone entitle us to stand before the presence of god if we wish to be justified by works for if a righteous person has fallen all his former righteousnesses are not remembered we may hence learn the folly of such self-formed plans as men contrive to force upon god for the purpose of satisfying his eternal justice for we never adopt a true method of worshipping the supreme being until we follow his precepts and yield obedience to his word may the confidence of such as arrogantly claim for themselves righteousness by works cease for ever for nothing except a full and entire observation of the law which it is certain no human being can perform entitles any one to entertain so vain an expectation we hence also infer how great is the folly of those boasters to god of works of their own invention which are held by the judge in no higher esteem than the vilest ordure for obedience is better than sacrifice moreover the law entered that the offence might abound but where sin abounded grace did much more abound that as sin hath reigned unto death even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by jesus christ our lord moreover the law entered this question depends on his former observation that sin existed before the giving of the law for after making this statement he immediately added what then serveth the law this difficulty therefore required to be solved but as he had then no opportunity for a longer digression he deferred the consideration of it until he came to this place and he now shows in passing the law to have entered that the offence might abound neither does he state the whole office and use of the law but treats only of one part which suited his present purpose for he points out the necessity he was under of disclosing more fully to mankind their ruin that he might have an opportunity afforded for displaying the grace of god men indeed were shipwrecked before the law but as they conceived themselves to be swimming even in their very ruin they were plunged into the vast abyss that their deliverance might be more striking when they emerge contrary to all human expectation from such an awful state and there was no absurdity in the law being in some measure passed for this very reason that it might twice condemn men whose condemnation had once been sealed for nothing is more just than by every possible means to bring the human race nay drag them when convicted to have a sense of their own sins and wickedness that the offence might abound the general method of explaining this passage since the time of augustine is well known that men's lusts are more irritated when restrained by the barriers of the law for it is a natural propensity in man to oppose what is forbidden 
I consider no other abounding to be meant in this passage but that of knowledge and obstinacy, for sin is so placed by the law before the eyes and attention of mankind that they are constantly compelled to behold themselves prepared for condemnation. Sin, which men would otherwise reject, despise, and neglect, in this way takes possession of the conscience. Besides, the person who before simply overstepped the bounds of righteousness becomes, when the law has been once appointed, a despiser of divine power and authority by which he was made acquainted with the will of the Lord of hosts, and tramples upon it by his own unbridled passion. An increase of sin by the law is the necessary result of such conduct because the authority of the lawgiver is then despised and his majesty impaired. Grace did much more abound grace came to the relief of mankind after sin had long held them plunged under its power for paul teaches us that the greatness and extent of grace are therefore more strikingly illustrated because it is poured out in so copious a manner during the abounding of sin as not only to overcome but even to absorb the overflowing deluge of iniquity for this we may learn that condemnation is not set before us in the law for the purpose of making us continue under its power but to advance us after we have become intimately acquainted with our misery to the enjoyment of christ who is sent to be a physician to the sick a deliverer of captives a comforter to the afflicted and an avenger of the oppressed isaiah sixty one one that as sin reigned as sin is called the sting of death because death has no other power against man except on account of sin so this last is said to exert its power by death in the latter sentence the order of the words is designedly confused if the apostle had used the expression that righteousness may reign by christ he would only have contrasted righteousness with sin but not satisfied with this opposition he adds grace with a view to fix more indelibly on the memory that the whole of our righteousness does not proceed from our own merit but from divine kindness he had before said that death itself had reigned he now bestows the kingdom on sin the end or effect of which is death he uses the past tense to have reigned not as if sin had ceased to reign in such as are only born of flesh and blood but he makes such a division between adam and christ as to assign his own time to each when the grace therefore of christ begins to act with power in certain individuals the kingdom of sin and death ceases End of section 8